Um, the Marriage of Figaro, or The Day of Madness, calls itself an opera buffa, a comic opera. It was composed in 1786 in four acts to a libretto, of course, by Lorenzo da Ponte, the first of three collaborations between Mozart and da Ponte. It's based on a stage comedy by Pierre Beaumarchais, La Folle Journée ou Le Mariage de Figaro, written in 1784. And you might notice the reversal of the titles between the opera and the play. The play has One Day of Madness or The Marriage of Figaro. The opera is The Marriage of Figaro or One Day of Madness. That might be significant. Beaumarchais' play had already caused considerable trouble in France with Louis XVI himself, who demanded a reading of the play before him, insisting that it really couldn't be produced. And it was only, in fact, Marie Antoinette, his wife, and indeed his brother, who eventually persuaded Louis, or rather Louis' censors were persuaded, that the ban on performing the play by the Comédie Française should be lifted. When the play was performed, it soon became the talk of Europe, and it was Mozart, interesting enough, who'd heard of Beaumarchais' play and who approached Da Ponte with it as a subject for an opera. And Da Ponte turned it into a libretto in an astonishing six weeks, rewriting it, of course, in poetic Italian, and incidentally removing all the piece's original political references. In particular, Da Ponte replaced Figaro's dramatic speech in the last act against the principle of inherited nobility. And he replaced it with an equally angry aria, which is, of course, about unfaithful wives, not about treacherous uh, lords. Contrary to the popular myth that's grown around the early performances of the marriage of Figaro in Vienna, the libretto was actually approved by the Emperor Joseph II and before any of the music was written. We are, of course, only four years away from 1789 and the beginning of the French Revolution. Well, this evening we're joined by Sonia Ben Santa Maria, who's a member of the English National Opera Music Staff, and the soprano Elizabeth Llewellyn, and they're going to perform two of the Countess Almaviva's arias from the opera. And we're also joined by the director of the Marriage of Figaro, Fiona Shaw. Will you please welcome Fiona Shaw? Fiona, is, this, is Figaro an opera that you've always known? Uh, I think, yes. I mean, I, I, everyone's known it. But I, I've only seen it a few times. I saw it in Aix-en-Provence about three years ago. And I think I've seen it in Dublin, which probably was chaos. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it's an opera that people think they know. And, of course, they know the tunes. When, when you first began to listen to it after you'd been invited to direct it here, uh, what were your first thoughts? What were your kind of reactions? Um... Well, I was, I was asked to do it last summer, 12 months, and then I went to America for the first six months of the year. So I played it in Bel Air a lot, in Los Angeles, and it was a very peculiar place to play or to get to know such an opera because, oddly, Bel Air is very like <laughs> um, a sort of Count's uh, Palace where I was playing it. So I began to hear it in relation to the, to the landscape and to the household that I was staying in. And that had a very particular effect on me, including... The bath, which you'll see in Act Two, the Countess's bath, is absolutely the bath of the hostess uh, of the house I, I stayed in. So I've been much influenced by uh, Los Angeles landscape and house, housing as I listened. But I think what I was struck by is its length. It's, it's a very, it's absolutely built for another time. It's built for a time when people had a whole evening in which to uh, go through a long story. I began to feel it was very like a Shakespeare in that the sort of transformative moments in it. Ostensibly, it's a comedy, but actually, 
uh, one of the, my favorite scenes is the scene when, when um, uh, Figaro discovers who his parents are, because I know people who've discovered their parents, and suddenly there's a sort of breath. It's, people think it's very funny that she sings Raffaello, but actually it's amazing that this two awkward couple of Marcellina and Bartolo, who, who really we don't know who they are or why they exist or why they're glued to each other, we discover that they had a child together 20-something years ago. And here he is. And I, I think that's very like Shakespeare. So I, I really began to map it onto Shakespeare. Do you think we should hear the French Revolution somehow uh, outside this opera? I mean, are the tumbrils at the gate of the Alba Viva's palace waiting for the Ancien Regime to be carried off? I was very interested. You, you mentioned that in the introduction. We spent weeks. Um, we have a revolve. And we have a group of actors who kept on improvising various scenes. And one of the scenes they improvised was that at the end of Act Two, uh, when the, finally the revolve stopped, you would see the, the servants dressed as the Countess and Susanna, having stolen their clothes, one of the servants in the bath smoking a cigarette, and that really, and some guys holding scythes, so that actually you felt that this household is just desperate for the revolution to occur. But in the event, and given that, as you say, uh, de Ponte sort of hijacked the play from Beaumarchais with its, its pre-revolutionary intent, intention, I felt that in the end, the opera has to be about what it's about, not about what Beaumarchais wanted to be about. I wish the aria were about politics that, that Figaro has, but in fact it's about women. So you can dangerously start to overlay a historic you know, uh, wallpaper onto, onto this or behind, you know, as a backdrop. And it's there. I mean, there's lots of people, you know, when Figaro is singing, uh, shaving the... Um, the bull's head when he's actually cutting the throat of the count in his mind. Uh, there is a boy polishing a scythe at the side. So it's not that I've left out the subterranean feeling of the revolution, but I haven't politicized it. So, so the piece then is rightly about the inequalities between men and women. It's about the, the difficulties of these relationships in essentially a very male-orientated world. Well, before I uh, embarked on it, I did go and see Peter Sellers, who had done a famous production in New York. And I said, what is the marriage of Figaro about? And he said, no one is any better than anyone else. And I found this really useful during the rehearsals because uh, some people might think, oh, well, you are sympathetic to Susanna. You do, because she is the person who sits in the middle of two men, one her her boss and one her husband, and both men are sort of fighting over her, and she actually has no autonomous power of her own because she's trapped in this pre-revolutionary indenture of working in this house. She can't really get out. She can't. She can't quit. She can't get another job. She can't go on the dole. She has to be there, but. Equally, um, the class system, which we're so obsessed by in this country, didn't really interest me. I was much more interested in, in the fact that one man who's worked for another man and has become his friend dares to try and covet that man's wife. I, I think that's a terrible act of betrayal of friendship um, when one of them has the social uh, uh, superiority. So I, I feel I wanted to jettison, in a way, the old-fashioned upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey notion of class, and just deal with one chap being powerful. Two centuries later, Figaro might have been the more powerful. Who knows, you know? I, I sometimes wonder if the, the secondary title, and it's interesting that, that, that Da Ponte and Mozart invert the titles, uh, the title, The Day of Madness, might suggest that it's the marriage of Figaro. It's, the idea of marriage is a kind of madness um, that we all have to confront. 
Well, I think, you know, it's called the marriage of Figaro. In fact, it's nearly about the non-marriage of Figaro, about the day that the marriage didn't nearly happen, nearly didn't happen. Um, and it happens with, you know, very perfunctorily, actually. Uh, it, it's a, uh, uh, we, we certainly highlight that in this, is that a march is called, people are gathered, you feel they haven't had time to get ready, and everybody just turns up anyway, and everybody's a bit frightened of the count anyway. So it's actually a bit of a disastrous marriage, which I like very, very much. It's not in any way celebratory. It's just one guy just for a moment, getting pole position and being able to marry Susanna on time before the catastrophe of the, of the fourth act. So it's, it's very much near mirth and madness, and I think madness is quite interesting because any day of a marriage, as anyone knows, or Christmas Day, these days when families have their worst quarrels, the unit of the marriage of Figaro, we've kind of highlighted that by having this strange revolve that keeps dragging you into rooms rather than the you people coming into rooms, we go into rooms with the people. And that there's a kind of revolution of thought, thinking, feelings going on all the time, all day. So it is full of mirth and madness. And I think the madness is a good clue. Do you think there's a contrast in the piece between the, the madness of, of what we see and the, the, what happens in the rooms into which we're dragged and the extraordinary order of Mozart's music. Well, Mozart, you know, was very clear about the order of his music. He felt music had to be ordered, had to be beautiful, something that we've long since challenged, I think. Uh, that art has to be beautiful, I suppose. That was so much part of the 18th century modus. But I think that... Uh, he was not unaware that underneath his music, or on top of his music, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, there's a much more soiled world. And I think it's the duty of the theatre, which is a visual, oral, emotional experience, to not allow the music to hijack the only response we have to that story, but to allow the totality of humanity to be present whilst the music underpins it with order. Um, this is quite a challenge because I think a lot of the, once the singers are locked on to a sextet or, or a trio even, they are incredibly held by the order of the music when in fact often what they're singing about is chaos. And uh, that has been very, very hard to, to negotiate and I try to do it by always making the performers play the intention of their thinking rather than the blending of the sound. And that's been really a huge challenge. But I, I feel that the order of the music, something being Mozartian should not mean that it, it's smooth and perfect. Fiona, thank you very much. We'll be talking again in a moment. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to have the first piece of our music now, Elizabeth Llewellyn, who of course has been Mimi here at London Coliseum, and who is covering the role of the Countess Almaviva, and he went on stage on the first night. And Sonia Ben Santa Maria, who's a member of the English National Music Staff, are going to perform Hear My Prayer, Porgia More from The Marriage of Figaro. Will you welcome, please, Elizabeth Llewellyn and Sonia Ben Santa Maria? <laughs>
Hear my prayer. Elizabeth Llewellyn, when we first meet the Countess in that aria, um, is she kind of wallowing in self-pity at what's been happening to her? I don't believe she is. Um, actually, when we first meet the Countess, she, we meet her in the middle of a conversation. Um, so Susanna has just begun to tell her a bit of what's been happening between her and the Count in Act One. And the countess reaction is to sing Porgio Amor. And then at the end of it, she says, okay, Susanna, finish off. Tell me the rest of the story. Um, so she's, she's just been told that although she knows that her husband is cheating on her and um, is treating, treating her badly, which is bad enough to live through, it's now begun to encroach on her particular part of the household, in particular her, her maid who is almost like a sister and a best friend to her. That's devastating news. But it almost seems like the end of a marriage at that point. I mean, what is about what, 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 what Susanna reveals? I mean, how can they go on, she and the Count? I think they have a, an understanding. Um, and I think you, you need to uh, remember, this is Rosina from the Barber of Seville. Um, she's very resourceful. She's very clever. Um, she's still very young. She's actually in her 20s. Um, this is only sort of three or four years after they've been, they got married, um, after the end of The Barber of Seville, if you know that, that opera. Um, and so they've still got quite a lot to learn about each other and about marriage and about life. Um, and, they, and she learned something about herself um, by the end of the opera, um, that you know, she's, she's much kinder 
than her husband and decides to accept him as he is. So that's quite a, that's quite a huge step to, to take and, and uh, something to discover about herself. Do you, do you think she regrets that she has to, in the end, seek help from her servants, from Susanna and Figaro, to resolve the situation in her marriage? I think she, I think she does, actually. I think it's, um, it, it's very difficult for 21st century eyes and ears to understand how difficult this must be. As far as we know, she has no family or no other sort of aristocratic friends. Um, her only friends are Susanna and Figaro. Um, but she is of a different class now. She's not a middle-class um, Rosina. She is aristocracy. And uh, the, just the humiliation of having to ask someone who is her servant, almost her slave, to, to help her resolve the big issues in her marriage, that's, that's an enormous ask. And it, it's incredibly degrading. Uh, for her, which is why that awful cry of anguish, that cri de coeur in the just before Dovisono happens. I think it's, it's, it's terrible, really crushing for her. Mozart does create extraordinary parts for women, doesn't he? Wonderful parts. Yes, he does. Um, and I've been very lucky. This is the second time I'm, I'm working on the Countess. Um, and I uh, covered Glyndebourne's uh, Donna Elvira last year. Um, and I'm singing Fjordaligi at Holland Park next year, so I, I get uh, quite a, a... What quite a gallery a, of... Yeah, I know, quite a gallery <laughs> of De Ponte ladies, as I call them. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've, I've loved rediscovering the Countess again, um, particularly uh, watching someone as amazing as Kate uh, uh, perform it and, and knowing the opera so well myself, you know, to actually see it through someone else's eyes is a real gift... Uh, for a performer, um, and Elvira uh, in in Don Giovanni is just as every bit as complex, um, every bit as feisty, but has an enormous heart um, and capacity for forgiveness as well. Elizabeth, what are you and Sonia and Santa Maria going to do for us next? Um, I'm going to sing that second aria from uh, Act Three, uh, Dove Sono, um, or where she remembers. Um, how good things were in her marriage and, and asks, how has this all gone so wrong? Predictable mixture of passion, rage in his heart, his disdain for. 
Susanna Zaria and the, the rest of the team before. Susanna's not here, I remember. Um, and now, Sonia Benzatamaria has joined us. Sonia, how do you prepare the singers for Mozart? Um, well, it's such a non-composer for any singers. I think they all pretty much start their career or studies with Mozart. I will actually prioritise recits. Uh, I think that's correct to say that in races, that where all the drama and the key moments do actually happen. And, and Mozart doesn't write any rhythm you know, during races. Uh, so it's, you have to find your own pace, basically, and your own speed. So I think a very good exercise, which I do with singers, and everybody does, is to write, to, sorry, to speak 
to talk through resets. So you find your own place. Well, how would you say that? Then find, are you cynical? Are you upset? Are you joking? So then you find your own speed and right emphasis, depends between Italian and English. So I would say resets first. And then it's, I think it's to work with the conductor, with ensembles or areas that's to match with the conductor once and what the singer wants. It, is, the, is the musical world that Mozart creates for the marriage of Figaro um, distinctive? I mean, do you immediately know when you're working with singers, when you hear this score, this has to be the marriage of Figaro? Are there, uh, apart from knowing, obviously, is there something about the way it's arranged musically? Uh, well, I think any Mozart, you recognize any Mozart, not from Miles, but you know what I mean. Because, uh, I don't know, it's such a genius, really. What else can you... Musically, I mean, I know he's, he's from the classical period uh, style, but he grew up with the gallant period, which is Bach, I would say, between end Baroque and beginning of classical. So on the papers, he's classical style. But because it's Mozart, he makes something else from it. And so he can be eccentric, a bit romantic, but still in the classical style. He's, he's a mix. He's such a genius. He just grabbed everything he grew up with and made his own mix and make it so special, I guess. Sonia Ben Santoria, thank you very much. Thank you, you very, much. very much. Thank you. you. I always think it's a terrible insult to make you play for us and then to grill you oh. with questions. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Figaro was premiered at the Borg Theater in Vienna on the 1st of May, 1786. Mozart himself directed the first two performances, conducting seated at the keyboard. That was the custom, of course, of the day. The first production was given a further eight performances, all in 1786. The premiere is generally judged to have been a huge success. The applause of the audience on the first night resulted in five numbers, separate numbers being encored, and seven on the 8th of May. Joseph II, the emperor, who in addition to trying to run the empire, was also in charge of the Burg Theater, was concerned by the length of the performance, and he directed his aide, Count Rosenberg, as follows. To prevent the excessive duration of operas, without, however, prejudicing the fame often sought by opera singers from the repetition of vocal pieces, I deem the enclosed notice to the public that no piece for more than a single voice is to be repeated to be the most reasonable expedient. You will therefore cause some posters to this effect to be printed. And the requested posters were printed up and posted in the Borg Theater in time for the third performance on the 24th of May. Fiona, can I come back to you? And we'll talk a little bit about the production. Um, could you ask you a little bit about the decision to use a revolve and a little bit about what you wanted to put on that revolve? Well, actually, I started with the idea of a maze because I wanted something that said something about the shape of the brain, sort of lots of little paths in the brain. Something that said something about the 18th century, which, of course, 18th century gardens are often built on mazes. Something about somewhere where people could get stuck emotionally so that the, the stage would be a metaphor for what was going on in people's lives, that people would go up paths, get stuck, go backwards, try and learn, try and not learn, discover they can't learn. So we've made three mazes. And uh, the first maze is just a maze that becomes very quickly the passages of a house. The second maze is the middle of the maze, where you just see the center of a maze, 
when you get into the middle, and the last maze is a low maze. And these, uh, the first maze, they revolve because, for two reasons. One, I wanted that we could only see the external part of the maze, obviously, so you're, you've got a whole maze, you can only see the front, and the conductor, Paul Daniel, had asked me to make sure that the singers were very far forward. And a good thing about building a house behind them is that the little rooms that they're in are very far forward. What we then did was that we, we, we did a series of exercises where we began to t have people walk around the house rather than people coming into rooms, as I said. And as they walked around, another room would appear. And this is all made in the speed of about 20 seconds behind stage where they take away a room and replace it with another room. And a room would come and people would keep walking and there'd be another room and then another room and another room. So there are people behind the stage building rooms very, very quickly all the time. And this seemed to me almost a metaphor for what was going on in those houses. The people are just working endlessly trying to put rooms together, put rooms together and take them away and put them together. So it's, it works on many levels, it seems to me. It's not a revolve for the sake of just revolution or the sense of revolution, but that emotionally things change, but also that people are moving around this house and that very unusually, I feel, that you get a chance to see the main body of the house, which is servants' quarters. So there's a lot of rooms. And, and we are very definitely at the end of the 18th century. We begin at the end of the 18th century because I don't feel you can really play Figaro without a sense that Susanna is trapped by law, as it were, that the droit de seigneur is law, that the count could sleep with her should he wish to. He says he's, he's stopped that dreadful practice, but he might reinstate it with her. You have to believe that because otherwise she can walk away and you lose the spine of the piece unless you set up a premise in which that's the case. But as the opera moves on, I allow little modern elements to come in because if we look back at 18th century houses now, we fantasize about how beautiful they are. But if they were looking forward, they might look forward and see a hoover or they might see a heater or, a, you know. So I, I'm trying to make the opera be a theatrical idea that both can look forward and back. And so as we deepen into the really the, the meditation about love and the difficulty of trying to nail the person you want to marry or the surety with which uh, you want to be reassured about your love continuing, it deepens. And I, by the end of the opera, in the maze, they're all in pretty well modern dress so that we know that they're people like us. I, I love the bull's horns. I mean, they have a wonderful, ambiguous message, don't they, for us? Well, I, there are a lot of bull's horns, as you'll see, but they started off as just bones. I was very keen on a Jurassic idea that's something to do with the atavistic passions that lie underneath this beautiful music. So for a long time, I had an iguana in the rooms, but that's gone now. And then I, and the ladies dressed, you know, stripped down often to their petticoats and corsets, and that's very near the sort of bones of animals as, they, as the 18th century wore. So this, I wanted to get people stripped away, that nobody was really dressed for the day. In fact, everybody was trying not to dress for the day. They're all sort of in their underwear. So the underwear is like animals or ancient animals, these bones. And it's also, of course, set in Seville. And so there's an element of bulls for Spain. But it's really not set in Seville, really. It's sort of, uh, it's nominally Seville. But more importantly, perhaps, is that the maze is the place where the Minotaur used to live. And Theseus, as you know from the story, goes in and tries to take on the Minotaur, this bullish creature who eats women for breakfast. And that and, seems and, to be very near the count. And spoke. men, he's yeah. men. But they, they were sent, that's right, a young boy and a young girl were sent every year. But I thought this idea that some sort of overtone, that sometimes it, light comedy often has its root in some very ancient Greek myth. 
And for me, I think somehow the Count is the Minotaur. I mean, not literally, but there's a, so there's a sense that he is a bull man and that the others are trying to deal with him, but he has all the power. If he's a bull man in a kind of aggressive patriarchal sense, he's also in danger of being sort of cuckolded by his own servants, isn't he? So it's horns in another sense, too. It is. But also, I didn't want to stack the cards against the Count in this production, not at all. In fact, it's much more interesting when you feel how seductive he can be, how gentle he is, how uh, attractive his music is and who he is, that he's absolutely uh, somebody one might be tempted. And I, every now and then you'll see Susanna is sort of tempted by him. He's not horrible at all. He's very nice. And I think that's what makes the opera thrilling because in some ways, by the time you get to Act Four, you have a man who has allowed his libidinous desires to override his better virtues. And I think that's why he's forgivable at the end, because he has had too much power. He's become spoiled with it. But of his nature, he's no better or worse than anybody else. And uh, Roland plays that very well. He never touches Susanna in Act One. He never, he never does any of that gruesome, you know, I want you, you. He doesn't do any of that. He just asks her if she'd like to meet him in the, in the uh, garden. And I, I find that very attractive in him. There's also a feeling in the production that Cherubino, who is often seen as a kind of, you know, um, uh, almost a China dollar kind of porcelain Meissen figure, it's a much tougher um, Cherubino you found. Yes, uh, we have a very, very feminine girl, uh, Katie Rudge, who hasn't got any brothers, she tells me, so she has no understanding of what young boys might be like at all. <laughs> in fact, she's a tremendous boy. And I, she began to play. I, I was very keen that the performers somehow bring a bit of themselves. I could, you know, anybody could say Carabino is a sort of fly-by-night flibbity-gibbet, but there's no point if the performer isn't by nature that. And Katie has an amazing stillness. And what began to come off her performance was that Carabino is sick of being beaten by the Count, being fired by the Count, and so he's kind of battered, this boy, but also has this huge lust and desire for women. So instead of being a sort of sprite, I think it's very interesting that he's a sort of Oliver Twist who is both beaten but can't resist girls at the same time, and uh, that's, I think, the carabiner we've found, really. I didn't decide that. It just came. But he's the most sexual carabiner I think I've ever seen. Well, I mean, bursting true. out of his trousers, you know, all the time. Yes, I mean, it, it, I just thought I wanted to take that, not in any crude sort of pantomimic way, but I'm very, very keen that he somehow has, you know, he says, I don't know what it is that I'm feeling. And you think, well, we all do know what it is that you're feeling. He says, nobody's <laughs> told you what it is. Um, and, you know, when, even when there's nobody to hear me, I do it all alone. This, this is a sort of, like a creature from India where people used to hug trees or make love to trees. He, he literally doesn't know where his hormones are bursting out of him. So he's endlessly in trouble with himself. And I think that's both funny but also very moving. This is the third time you've directed for English National Opera. Um, how, do you, how have you come to work with singers over the, over the periods in which you've directed for here? Well, I initially directed a very short opera, and we had the same amount of time, so we polished that quite well. The second time was a Hensa opera, Elegy for Young Lovers, and we were all discovering it together because it was such difficult music, and the story was so amazingly hard to tell, and we had this amazing ice clock in the middle of it, so we had an element of installation meets an opera. But this is core repertoire, and this is really high-protein, really hard. Uh, we had four weeks in the rehearsal room, and actually I wish we had you know, six or eight to do this huge amount. And so I, I, I find the singers, luckily, they know it. What's been very interesting is trying to get them to unknow the versions of it that they think they know. 
I wanted them to find a new version. I wanted them not to make any assumptions about the plot. I wanted them not to make any assumptions about what comedy is or who they are. And I think we've made some very interesting discoveries by doing that. Peter, let's ask the audience to join us. There is a roving microphone. If you like to put up your hand, catch my eye, and then wait for the microphone to come, and please speak into the microphone, uh, that will be splendid. Who'd like to ask a question? Oh, we're going to be very English and sit on our hands. I yes, think. don't all think We've got one in the front row. One in the very front row. Would you talk a little bit about the rehearsal process and how you kind of played with the idea of the acting of it as opposed to the singing? Well, we had a week where we just had the actors initially on this revolved house. And these actors have become really, for me, every bit of decoration that you might have had had you painted wallpaper and curtains. So it's a very bare uh, abstract set. But the, these actors have invented an entire series of relationships. They run the house. They are the house. They're the, they're the machine of the house. They, too, have emotional lives that nobody takes much notice of. Um, and so for the first week, we did that. And then in the second week, the, act, the singers arrived. And we initially looked at the film. Um, uh, on day one, I showed uh, the film of Renoir's um, The Rules of the Game, which is set before the Second World War in a big, huge country house, because I wanted to get that sense of huge amounts of stories being told all the time. And we watched that together as a sort of touchstone to unify everybody. And we drank champagne and watched that. And then we settled down to some serious work. And really, the serious work, we just would start with the scenes, uh, but I didn't have any theory about them. I drove the singers mad because I kept on wanting them to tell me something about what they felt about it. They were saying, just tell us where to stand. I said, well, I can't. I can only tell, help you to stand where I think you think you should stand. And this, I think, even though it's torturous, is a very good way of working because I do feel now they own their performances and I can help them with them. I can tinker with them if they get too overblown or something. But in a way, if somebody's willing to walk across the stage because they're fed up with somebody else, then they'll do it. If the director tells them to do it, it will always be the director walking across the stage. So a bit, maybe that's from the theatre, but I'm very keen that singers start becoming something about the... In inhabiting the performances themselves so that they, they and what they sing are the same thing in this instance. They can, they can wear pink hats and funny noses in another production. But for this one, I want it to be them. Another question. Who would like to ask a question? Have we reduced everybody to silence? Gosh. Well, maybe someone let me ask you. In this rehearsal process, in which you're asking the characters, in a, the singers in a quite different way to, 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 to own and inhabit the parts, um, how quickly did they discover this was really rather exciting? Because it must have been quite liberating for them. Uh, they took a bit of time, actually. I mean, th there's a bit at the end of Act Two where they end up in an abattoir. And uh, I had to remind them that maybe they'd be quite chilly in an abattoir, um, a place where they keep all the meat frozen for the house, you know, where they just uh, look after the meats of the house. Um, they began to like it very much. In fact, now they tell me things like, they say, no, I can't do that. I would never do that um, uh, when I suggest things. And I, I get delighted when they say that. They means that they actually know who they are in that situation and they live in that house. And what was very good is that Devon Guthrie, who plays Susanna, she rehearsed with us in the first week. So she's one of the servants and she's no more than one of the servants, and uh, that worked very, very well. If we have any more questions? Yes, we have one at the back. We'll take that first, and then you will have the last word in the front row. Um, at what stage did you get to start rehearsing with the Revolve? Was it only when you got into the theatre, or did you have something in the rehearsal room? 
No, we, we, we had a revolve, we had the revolve in the restroom, but we had we didn't have these huge plasticated walls. We just had a little cheesecloth walls, but everybody which you could see behind, in fact, that's been quite an adjustment for us because when they're in the middle of the maze, on this maze, they can't see a thing, they don't know where they are. Um, and we uh, we began to write, of course, we also had the chorus to come in, and the chorus sit in a tiny room where the marriage is going to take place, and they sit in chairs as you all are now. So uh, they also had to negotiate the maze, so we, we had it the whole time. And the last question. Last question in the front row here. With this being the third opera you've done, are you finding it get, it's getting easier or are there nuances you're, you're figuring out now that you wish you'd known when you did the first one? Um, on the contrary, I think it's getting harder. <laughs> um, I think it's getting harder because um, maybe, maybe one gets more and more ambitious for what it should be. I, I think the opera, as a form, is moving forward really fast now and singers are becoming... Uh, singing actors in a way and I think that will need a change of consciousness probably in the opera houses but they're beginning to get it and also I think in the singing schools I think in the conservatories we, we mustn't just look after young voices and expect the director to take responsibility for every action but actually I think that's changing so I, I am, I've enjoyed taking on something as big as this it's certainly a lot bigger than any of us that's what I feel it's, it's a million... Well, it's, it's all the different skills of, you know, video design, lighting design, stage managers who've done a huge work, the stage crew who have been unbelievably dexterous, as you'll see. There's a change from Act 3 into Act 4, which is really impossible, and it happens in two minutes. Um, so, you know, that's that. Fiona, you, you wet the appetite totally <laughs> for the evening. Can I say, some, can I say some thank yous to all of you who've come this evening for those who ask questions. Thank you, too, to Elizabeth Llewellyn and Sonia and Santa Maria. But above all, our thanks to Fiona Shaw for this night's performance and for being with us. Fiona, thank you thank all for you coming. Very much. Thank you.